Well, good evening, and a warm welcome to our service. Uh, we're going to begin with uh, some words from Acts uh, chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, and it'd be good to say these words together, so let's stand uh, and read uh, and say God's words together. This is what we believe about our salvation, so let's read uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Please uh, do take your seats. Uh, that salvation uh, is needed because of our sin, uh, sin which we need to acknowledge before God. And our first song this evening acknowledges our sin by confessing it to him and asking him to create in us a clean heart. Take 
Well, we can pray for a clean heart and know that we can be forgiven because the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins. Uh, he is our sacrifice of atonement. And as we said at the beginning, through the words in Acts, there is none other that can save us from our sins. Uh, and Paul, the apostle, writes about this uh, in the book of Romans. And we're going to have our reading from there in Romans chapter 3. And our reading comes from verses 21 to 31 uh, of that chapter. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31. Romans chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that you are the God of everyone, the Jew and the Gentile, the God of all of us. And we're reminded also, Lord, through that passage that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory and need a saviour. Lord, we thank you that you provided the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can be assured of a, an eternity with you for those that follow you and give their lives to you, Lord, and trust on that sacrifice. Lord, we look around and we're acutely aware of the way that we and the rest of the world have fallen short of you. Lord, we pray for our country, Lord, and the world in the way that it behaves, Lord, towards you. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, bring your salvation, we pray. 
Lord, we think of those, particularly at this time, Lord, who are suffering through illness, Lord, or bereavement. Lord, we know of many within our fellowship here who are undergoing treatment, Lord, for sickness, and we pray that you would help them, whether that's for a physical ailment, Lord, or mental ailment. Lord, we pray that you would give them the comfort that they need at this time. Lord, the peace of mind that all things are in your hands and you are in control. Lord, we're fully aware of those with mental health issues, Lord, that are coming more and more upon us as we look around, Lord, or even within ourselves. Lord, we pray for relief of those illnesses too. Lord, the illnesses that we can't see in others, the struggles, the daily struggles that many go through, Lord, with depression, anxiety, paranoia, Lord, all these various mental health issues, Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we pray for healing from it, Lord, and we pray for your comfort and love upon them. Lord, we pray also for the situation as we look at it on the news, Lord, in India. Lord, the vast amounts of poverty that there are in that country, Lord. People dying on the streets. Lord, again, we ask for your grace and mercy on those people in India, Lord, that they might look to you, that they might know the gospel. Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon this world, Lord, and again, we ask for healing, Lord, both spiritually and physically. So, Heavenly Father, we finally pray for those who are bereaving at this time, Lord. Lord, we pray for Clive and Dawn as they prepare for Clive's dad's funeral this week. We pray for Pat as she prepares for her sister's funeral next week. Lord, we pray for them, that you would comfort them again, Lord, in this time of sadness. And ask that your hand will be upon them. Amen.
naked come to thee for dress help us look to thee for grace foul I to the mountain cry wash me And if you return in your uh, Bibles to Matthew uh, 26, and this evening we're going to go from uh, chapter 26, verse 69, uh, down to chapter 27 and verse 10. So if you return there. Uh, Last week we saw uh, the Lord Jesus arrested and Uh, He was standing trial before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish religious council. And tonight we come to a a change of scene, uh, indicated by the first word in this passage, which is the word now. Uh, In our our church, um, some of you may be aware of this, but we have a camera. uh, And what the camera does is when the musicians are playing, the camera goes this way and focuses on uh, them leading the worship. And then when they're done and the worship's being led back from the pulpit, the camera turns back uh, to here, uh, where, wherever the, uh, the leading is going on. And Matthew is doing exactly the same kind of thing in his gospel here. So we've been focusing the camera on Jesus at his trial uh, and his arrest and in the garden and so on. And what Matthew does for us now is he turns the camera and he comes to focus on three characters, uh, Peter, Judas and the chief priests. And we're going to look at those uh, three characters in this passage uh, tonight. So let me read uh, God's word uh, from verse 69 of chapter 26. So follow along with me and let's hear what the Lord has to say to us. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, 
This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this uh, into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is God's word. Well, I've entitled this message, uh, Self-Inflicted Tragedy. Uh, The ancient theologian Augustine Uh, wrote about how sin makes us turn in on ourselves. That means that sin makes us turn away from God and others and makes ourselves the focus of our existence. And what that does is it leads away from joy and life towards misery and destruction. That's where a a self-absorbed, self-obsessed kind of life leads. And what we see in this passage tonight is a tragedy made by three people who have turned in on themselves. Uh, These three people show us three examples of this, and they show us where this kind of turning in on ourselves leads us. And the three people are Peter... Judas, and the chief priests. So first of all, in chapter 26, in those final verses, we see Peter. And he shows us the tragedy of of being afraid for his own reputation. Uh, We saw Peter last in verse uh, 58, when he entered the courtyard, and he sat down there, if you remember, to see what the outcome of this trial would be. And the outcome that he was looking for uh, does not look good for Jesus. Uh, Jesus last week was declared worthy of death, so not a, not a good outcome. And in verse 69, 
Peter is where we left him in verse 58. He, he's sitting in the courtyard. Uh, and that courtyard was a busy place uh, with lots of soldiers and servants uh, milling around there. And we see in this verse that a young servant girl came to Peter. And she notices him. Now please would you note with me how she is described. She is young, she is a servant, and she is a girl. And these words combine to make someone who is the lowest standing possible in the society in which they lived. This was not a soldier. This was not a ruler. This was a young servant girl speaking to Peter, the great hulking fisherman. And this young servant girl, of no standing whatsoever, says to Peter, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Now saying Galilee here was a derogatory term in Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee was not a place of repute. Now, we can all perhaps think of places like that. But not only is it embarrassing that she mentions Galilee, but she mentions Jesus, who has just been arrested and just been condemned to death. And so his standing was as low as it could possibly be right now. And Peter, who has been up to this point so confident of not disowning Jesus, surely admitting the truth to a young servant girl would be no problem for him. I mean, he is the one, isn't he, who says to Jesus, I would even die for you, Jesus. No problem, you would think. Well, look at verse 70. But he denied it before them all. Uh, before them all indicates that there were other people around who might overhear him. And Peter's denial here, it's not an outright denial, is it, of knowing Jesus. Rather, he just evades the question, doesn't he, by saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He just seems to try and shrug it off, hoping she'll just go away. And this young servant girl right here makes a denial out of one of the chief disciples of Jesus. Uh, John Calvin notes here uh, that it doesn't take a heavy fight to break a man, nor many forces and devices. In other words, our resolve can be very easily broken down, can't it? Here, Peter is, has a denial brought out of him by a young servant girl. Well, he moves away in verse 71 from the center of the courtyard to the gateway. Uh, it's less public there, but in, in another way, it shows his denial even more, doesn't it? He's moving away from Jesus and away from questions about his relationship with Jesus. And denial, denying Jesus here isn't just speaking badly, it's also avoiding speaking about Jesus as well. And so he tries to avoid even having to talk to anyone about this by moving away from the center uh, of attention. But in verse 71, another servant girl appears to him who sees him in the gateway. And notice, notice here in, in verse 71 how she doesn't speak directly to Peter, but she speaks to those around him. So this is more public than last time. And she says to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. 
Well, if Galilee was a place of ill repute, we've seen before in Matthew's gospel, Nazareth was even more of a place of ill repute. It was a place of ill repute in Galilee. And again, Jesus is at a low ebb. He's been arrested. And the accusation here is even stronger than it was before. It's more public. If he was known to have been with Jesus, he might be arrested as well. And in verse 72, we see that a stronger accusation brings out an even stronger denial. Notice what he says. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So this time there's an oath, uh, which is kind of legal language um, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that kind of thing. And there's a direct denial of even knowing Jesus here, isn't there? I don't know the man. It's no longer evasive. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. This time, it's a direct denial of even knowing him. Well, obviously, this denial satisfies people for a time, because in verse 33, we read that it was after a little while that he had any more problems. But those problems do come, and this time, the accusation intensifies even more. It's no longer a servant girl It's a group of people standing there in verse 73. And this group don't speak to each other. They en masse go to Peter himself and they say to him, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Now, just like in our country, different regions would have had different accents that give away where you're from. I remember when uh, not long after we moved to this area, uh, I was trying to find a place called Coldmore, um, and uh, I couldn't find it because it wasn't on uh, the, the, the map because everyone around here calls it Karma, which I don't understand still to this day because it sounds nothing like Coldmore, but people around here call it Karma, and in fact, uh, just an interesting bit of local trivia, a man, a murderer was found uh, who committed a murder in Karma, and they found the man because they knew it was a local man because only a local person would use the word karma to describe the area where he lived. His accent gave him away. And that's the kind of thing going on here with Peter. There were, Jesus was there. He was from Galilee. Uh, his followers were Galilean. Peter has a Galilean accent. They put the two and two together, and they bring out this accusation. And the strongest accusation brings the strongest of denials. Peter, this time, calls down curses and swore. Now, swearing here isn't bad language. It's a, another form of oath. He's combining it with a curse, and effectively what he's saying is, may I die if I am not telling the truth. That's the kind of thing he's saying. It's, it's as strong of a denial as you can get. And then look at what Matthew says in in verse 74 uh, in the middle there. Immediately, a cock crowed. Straight after the third denial, the cock crowed just as Jesus said it would. And in verse 75, just note there, Peter remembered. He remembered. He remembered what Jesus had said just hours before. In verse 34, Jesus had said Peter would deny him this very night. And it happened. 
Uh, it's ironic that we left Jesus last week when, just before the camera turns, uh, being mocked by the people saying, prophesy to us, Messiah. And right here, a direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus is fulfilled, just as he said it would be. And verse 75 ends with Peter going out and weeping bitterly. Peter was, was deeply sorry for what he had done. He thought he could stand, but he fell. It was tragic, isn't it? How could it come to this? How could Peter be one, at one moment so confident and then fall so spectacularly? And the answer is because of the tragedy of being afraid for your own reputation before others. This is a clear example, isn't it, of the fear of people of what they think of you, of what they might do to you, of how they might treat you, of losing your reputation, and how easy it is for us to be exactly the same as this. It's easy to be confident at church, isn't it, when it looks good for us to be confident here, but it's not so easy when it may cost us, is it? And how easy is it for us to live in such fear of people that we deny our Lord in our words and or our actions? We can deny Jesus in the workplace. This can be with our utter silence about being a Christian. It can be by being involved in all the crudeness and the meanness of the office or the ward or wherever else, it is, wherever else you work. What about at school, young people? Following Jesus, having that label, is, it's not cool, is it? It's not cool to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you avoid talking about him altogether? Do you even do what Peter does here and say, I don't even know him? How many of us can do this with our family and our friends? I would also, also issue a challenge here about how we perhaps use social media. Uh, how do you use the platforms that you have? Do you elevate Christ or do you deny him through your absolute silence about him? Do your pro, does your profile elevate Christ or would people not even know that you're a Christian as they look at you, your posts and such things? Well, this is the last time that we see Peter in this gospel. But it's not the last time we see Peter in the New Testament, is it? We see Peter later on finds forgiveness from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, we see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit who gave him the power to stand for his Lord when he stands before people far more frightening than a young servant girl. He stands before rulers and authorities and soldiers. And Peter changes from uh, cowering before a young servant girl to being the Peter of Acts, who says things like this. Uh, speaking of the rulers, they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is, this is the same Peter as, as we've just read about here. And then in the next chapter of Acts, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. The same ones he's hiding from here. 
to be questioned by the high priest. We give you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Isn't that amazing what the Holy Spirit can do in the life of a fearful man? He can make him stand before the rulers and authorities of his age. And that same Holy Spirit who gives Peter boldness lives in us and gives us the boldness to be able to overcome the tragic fear of men and fear God more, standing for Jesus. Well, whilst Peter was tragic, he did not end in tragedy, did he? He was restored. But Judas, on the other hand, well, he was just tragic. In him, we see the tragedy of him atoning for his own wrongdoing. Uh, To atone means to make right. And in the Bible, it means to make right with God. Uh, The Bible also teaches us that we can never atone for our own sin. We can never make it right ourselves. We need a savior. And the tragedy of Judas was that he tried to save himself. He tries here to atone for his own sin. Well, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27, we come to another new scene. It's the morning and the chief priests and the elders have met together to plan how to have Jesus executed. Uh, This means they have to bring a case together that would hold water before the Roman governor, Pilate. The Romans would not definitely execute Jesus for blasphemy, which is what we saw last week they charged him with. And so they had to come up with a case that Pilate would agree to execute Jesus for. And we'll see the case next week, but they came up with it, and we see at the end of verse 2, Jesus is led away to be handed over to Pilate. And we're not told how, but in verse 3, Judas, we read, saw this. He saw that Jesus was condemned, and he was able then to see where his sin had led him and where his sin had led Jesus. This is is quite a moment here in in this passage. It's a moment to wake up to, isn't it? To realize where your sin has led you. Have you ever had that experience? That, That moment of, what have I done? Have you ever experienced that? Where you've, you've, you've realized it's dawned on you where your sin has led you. That's what happens here in verse 3. Judas sees what has happened. And when Judas saw what he had done, we read in verse 3, he was seized with remorse. So he was definitely sorry for what he had done. This was no fake remorse or fake sorrow. He was seized with it. It was overwhelming him. And Judas wants to get rid of this guilt and this shame and this sorrow for what he had done to Jesus and where his sin had led him. And the key to understanding what Matthew is showing us here is to see what Judas does with his guilt and his shame and his sorrow. And the tragedy is, he tries to get rid of it himself. 
He tries to atone for his own sin. First of all, at the end of verse uh, 3, Judas returns the 30 pieces of silver. He wants to give the money back. He tries to undo what has already been done. Uh, The idea he has here is, if I give the money back, then the responsibility will disappear. And that tiny amount of money, that, remember that 30 pieces of silver was, 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 was hardly anything. It was a pitiful amount of money, but it's weighing very heavily in his pocket, isn't it? And he wants to get rid of the money. But you can't undo sin. When you've done something wrong, you, you can't undo what you've done. It's been done. You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't unsay what you've said. That's one of the tragedies of sin, isn't it? That that once it's done, it's done, isn't it? You can't undo it yourself. You don't get a mulligan with sin. And in verse 4, he tries to return the money. And he confesses his sin to the chief priests and elders. And and notice in verse 4, his confession is very good. In fact, I would say it's a a model confession. He admits that he has sinned, and he says exactly what he has done. I have betrayed innocent blood. You know, when when we teach, when the Bible teaches us about how to confess, we're taught that confession means admitting what you've done, agreeing with God what the sin is. And here he says what he has done. I I have betrayed innocent blood. And here he is in the temple, the the place of atonement, the place where you go, where the sacrifices are made, and he confesses his sin. The problem he has is this temple and these chief priests are now obsolete. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the great high priest. And you can't find atonement anywhere else. And we can see that the religious leaders are completely helpless for him because they don't help him at all. Look at at the end of verse 4. He confesses to them and they say, what is that to us? That's your responsibility, Judas. I mean, there's irony in that statement, isn't there? It has everything to do with them. We'll look at that in a minute, but they they, they, they held Judas responsible. In a sense, they're right. Judas was responsible for his sin. But they were also culpable, weren't they? But this statement that they make, it's your responsibility. That is the response of every single man-made, rules-based religion like that which these religious leaders were following. Judas goes to the religious elite and he asks for atonement and they say, it's your responsibility, Judas. You sort it out yourself. And every single religion apart from Christ says the same thing. It's your responsibility. You go do this. Christ takes responsibility for our sins and dies for them. All others give you things to do to try and make it right. And it never works. It's a tragedy. If you're going anywhere else other than Jesus to find atonement, to make sin right, it will never work. And then in verse 5, Judas throws the money back in the temple. 
probably back into the treasury where it came from. And he leaves. He couldn't find atonement with false religion. He couldn't find atonement by trying to undo what he had done. The weight of sin was so much for him to bear, we read the utterly tragic words at the end of verse 5. Then he went away and hung himself. Judas realized how great a sinner he was. He realized he couldn't make it right, and it completely crushed him. And he compounds his sin by his suicide, which is self-murder, which is a sin. He tries to atone for himself by dying for his own sins. He thought his death would remove his guilt. He felt his guilt so deeply that he punished himself most severely. He probably thought it would bring him relief from his guilt, but as an unbeliever, he would find that it would not. Now, the Bible does teach uh, that suicide is a sin. It breaks the commandment not to murder. But it's not the unforgivable sin, and, and it does not bar a Christian from heaven. However, and this is really important to understand, that suicide never, it never ever brings relief from misery. Even for the Christian, all it does is it transfers that misery to others. Those who are left behind in your family and your friends. Uh, in my life, I've had two times where uh, people, one time in my family, one time a friend, has committed suicide. And the misery that that leaves is, is terrible, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't disappear because the person has committed suicide. That misery is transferred to all of those who have been left behind. And if you are not a Christian, it makes the misery permanent because you won't go to be with God. And that's why if you are struggling with guilt or struggling with a blackness due to sin, due to suffering, uh, due to mental health problems, I would appeal to you, do not take the route that, G that Judas did here. I would encourage you to talk to someone and to let others speak into your life words of hope. Because God has given us assurance of his presence. He has given us his forgiveness and he gives us hope. And God has deliberately put us as Christians in a family together that we may serve one another even when we feel darkness to this degree. It's okay to talk about these things. And I would say we must talk about them and seek the help that we need even in the darkest places. You know, the biggest tragedy with Judas is that he ran to the wrong tree. 
he should have ran to Calvary's tree and found atonement in Christ. But let me ask you, what do you do with your sin? I mean, one of the most common responses is to suppress it and not think about it. But many try to make it right with their good works. Some go to other religions. But none of those things atone for sin. We heard these words in the hymn Rock of Ages, didn't we? Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And that's the wonderful truth of the gospel. This is the hope that we have. Jesus can and does atone for the sins of all of those who run to him. You don't need to despair over your sin. You don't need to try and make it right. You take it to him and he pays the penalty for your sin. The blood of innocence was shed. It was shed for our guilt so that we could be forgiven. And either we take our sins to Jesus and find forgiveness there, or we will suffer it for ourselves for eternity. Well, there is another response to our sin that we see from the chief priests that is also most tragic. Whilst many suppress their sin, many try to work their way out of it, many just won't accept that they are sinners. They absolve themselves. Absolution means being declared not guilty. And that's what we see with the chief priests. The tragedy of absolution for their own responsibility. Now we see this absolution in verse 4 when they absolve themselves by declaring that Judas is responsible for the shedding of innocent blood as if they had nothing to do with this plot against Jesus which they'd been meeting about. But in verse 6, the chief priests need to figure out what to do with the money that Judas has just thrown back in the temple treasury. And they they couldn't leave the money there, they, they were saying, because according to the law, it had been used to arrange the shedding of blood. It's interesting, isn't it, that they have no problem taking money out of the treasury to arrange the shedding of innocent blood, but boy, you can't throw the money back in. They were again interested in the tiny details of the law, forgetting the big, massive, heinous sins that they were doing right there and then. They want to be seen to do what's right, absolving themselves of wrongdoing. In their minds, they've kept the law, they've ticked the boxes, so they're in the right. And verse 7 tells us that the money was used to buy a potter's field. Uh, Probably it means that the field was full of clay. Not much would grow in it, so you could buy it for cheap. Uh, And Acts chapter 1, in fact, tells us that this was the very field that Judas Iscariot uh, killed himself in. So since it couldn't be used for much else, you couldn't grow things in it, it was defiled because of Judas' death, they bought it as a burial ground, so that they could bury foreigners who couldn't be buried with Israelites. Uh, So when a foreigner came to Israel and they died, they could be buried in this field. I mean, how nice of them that they would do such a thing for these foreigners. 
that were coming to Israel. What a, what a lovely use of the money that they had taken out of the treasury. Well, the field is called the field of blood. Uh, Matthew says in his day, that's what it was known as. And it was called that because it was purchased by money that had been used for death to purchase a field where death had taken place. What we can see and take from this is that the chief priests, in buying this field, sought to bury a problem called Judas Iscariot so that they could be absolved of any responsibility for what had taken place. Well, as wrong as Judas was, and as tragic as he was, he did at least see his own sin. The tragedy of the chief priests is that they don't think they've done anything wrong at all. They cannot accept their sin. They absolve themselves of any responsibility. And isn't that the case of so many people? They just cannot accept that they've done anything wrong at all. And we also fall into this trap when we try to justify ourselves. When we make excuses for our sin. It wasn't my fault. I was born this way. Do you see what I have to put up with? My brother or sister made me do it. And so on and so forth. You can fill in the blank. We all know how to make excuses. We know the ones we make, don't we? The problem is, whilst you think you can absolve yourself, God sees and God knows all. And unless you come to Jesus and submit to him, you will never find the absolution on judgment day. That day which is coming where we stand before God and the books are opened and there will be no excuses. There will be nowhere where you can bury the problem. There will be no pieces of silver for you to purchase something that can hide away your sin. But whilst the enemies of God were scheming to kill Jesus and to absolve themselves of guilt, verses 9 and 10 show us they were actually fulfilling the very scriptures of the God they were plotting against. In verses 9 and 10, we see Matthew pointing out the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, these verses um, are not a direct fulfillment prophecy. What I mean by that is sometimes when the Old Testament prophesies, there is a direct fulfillment. It says this, and this exact thing happened. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, when we read about what happens on the cross, there is direct fulfillment. But Jesus also fulfills types of people and events from the Old Testament. And Matthew, like other New Testament writers, sometimes combines these events in one fulfillment quotation. And that's what's going on here. Uh, Matthew quotes from uh, two prophets, Zechariah and Jeremiah. But because Jeremiah is the more prominent, he names him in his gospel. So in, there's actually three different places where Matthew quotes from. First of all, there's Zechariah chapter 11. And in Zechariah 11, we read how God's people there are looking for the Messiah. Uh, he's described as a shepherd, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago. This shepherd is rejected, and he's paid 30 pieces of silver to go away. 
And the Lord describes this 30 pieces of silver as the handsome price, sarcastically. But listen to what's done with the money in Zechariah 11. It says, The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is the temple. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Judas did, wasn't he? He threw the money back into the temple. So that was Zechariah 11. Then in Jeremiah chapter 19, Jeremiah goes to a potter's house. He takes a clay pot and he smashes the clay pot to picture what will happen to Israel because of their sin. And the specific sin that Israel committed in Jeremiah chapter 19 was the killing of innocent children on the altar of Baal. Jeremiah said that the valley of Ben-Hinnom was filled with the blood of the innocent. So the people of God were killing innocent children in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And guess where the field was that the chief priests purchased? It was in the exact place where all those years before the blood of those innocent children was shed. And then finally, in Jeremiah chapter 32, that's the third place the prophecy comes from, he was told by God to buy a field. Because even though God is going to destroy the land, the people of God would be restored there. And so although God's people have rejected and killed their own Messiah, through the church we see the people of God restored. What Matthew is showing us is that again and again we see a pattern of fulfillment of the Old Testament in the rejection of Jesus Christ. He was cheaply valued. He was rejected by his own people. His innocent blood was betrayed. And even with that money, a field of blood was bought that pointed to the destruction of the nation. Now, if, you, if I've got you lost in some of those details... Don't worry, here's a sentence that will just help you to sum up what Matthew's saying. Matthew's showing us that the sins of Judas and the sins of the chief priests are a tale as old as time. They are a tale as old as time, and the same is true today. Rather than going to God with our sin and falling on his mercy, we try and atone for it ourselves, and we're crushed by the guilt or we try and absolve ourselves and pretend that there's nothing wrong. And the tale as old as time has the same ending. It never, ever works. Well, Jesus has been out of the scene, a bit like with our camera that turned around. But his shadow is over what is going on. We can see Jesus so clearly in that he is the opposite of all of these tragedies. He's the answer to them. Jesus, unlike Peter, is not afraid for his reputation. Rather, he humbles himself as a man of no reputation, and he was willingly humiliated and crucified for our sins. Jesus, unlike Judas, can atone for our sins. Because he had none of his own to atone for. 
Jesus is the temple. And he is the great high priest who is able to help us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for all of those who will go to him. And Jesus, unlike the chief priest, offers not fake absolution buried somewhere deep underground, but real absolution, a real declaration of not guilty, not just pretending that we're not guilty, but actually declaring you're not guilty because all of that sin and shame was buried with him. And then he rises from the dead so that we are declared not guilty of all of our sins. Isn't that so much better than burying it somewhere? And so I urge you tonight not to turn in on yourself, which leads to misery and really leads to death, but turn out to Jesus, the place that leads to true life. Don't deny him, but rather like he did, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Because he is the only way to life. The only way to change a self-inflicted tragedy into a God-given, God-glorifying victory. Come to Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that so often... Our lives have been just tragic in the same ways that we find here. We have not feared you. We have been afraid for our own reputations. We have sought to make things right ourselves. We have not gone to you for atonement. And how often have we made excuses to absolve ourselves of responsibility for our sin? But tonight, Lord... We want to change. We want to repent of those things. And we thank you that we don't have to live a tragedy anymore. Because Christ has come, we can share in his victory. And I pray that every single person here tonight would live in the light of that victory and find life in Christ, in whose mighty name we ask. Amen. Well, our final song um, really fits perfectly with what we've been uh, just hearing. Uh, The final song is, Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves?
advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Is more. 